the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment. Uh, as always, follow us online at danproftshow.com, where you can get podcasts as well as uh, Spotify or iTunes, you can get the podcast of the program as well. Social media at Dan Proft Show and at Dan Proft. We've got uh, a good show coming up, uh, a lot on uh, the purge, as I prefer to call it, over the more pedestrian cancel culture. It makes it sound more innocuous than it is, including with uh, Professor Walter Block, who's been targeted for elimination at uh, Loyola University in New Orleans. Brendan O'Neill, across the pond, editor of Spiked. Uh, and uh, we'll talk uh, a little, continue our conversation uh, that we began last week with the remarkable, uh, really, and disgraceful postings at the uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, Dominic Green from Spectator, the Life and Arts Editor from Spectator, will join us a lot, lot more. Uh, but I want to begin with uh, Trump's extended interview with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday over the weekend, wide ranging, uh, answered all the questions. Often colorfully, as you would expect from President Trump. Uh, But before even that, um, part of the conversation, of course, was Chris Wallace unveiling a new Fox News poll and then Trump and Wallace having the the anodyne argument about polling and all the polling was wrong in 2016 and I don't trust your polling and our polling is good and back and forth, blah, 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 blah. First of all, the national polling doesn't mean anything. You know, the Fox News poll, 49 Biden, 41 Trump doesn't mean anything. Battleground states mean something. Polls that just have registered voters are much less accurate than polls that have likely voters. Uh, so you zero in on who's actually turning out. Right. But part of the accuracy or inaccuracy of models is whether it's representative within a 95 percent confidence interval of what the actual Election Day turnout will look like. So there's so much to this. But. There was something uh, in that in Spectator, speaking of the Spectator, as I was mentioning, Dominic Green on the show. Uh, David Catron over at uh, Spectator makes a good point about a, a data point that has been under discussed. And it's this uh, notion that who people expect to win often does win. In point of fact, the expectation uh, can be self-fulfilling. Because it can drive turnout or lack thereof, for example. And um, an average of recent polls finds that a majority of voters, about 55 percent, believe Trump will defeat Biden. Trump's edge on the question has remained fairly consistent over time. And this is something that more and more academics are looking at for its predictive value. You know, if you don't believe somebody's going to win, they're not going to win. Right. Because you're not going to work. You're not going to turn out. 
and so on and so forth. It becomes something where you have this, the expectation. Now it doesn't always work that way. Uh, you, depending on who has the expectation at the electorate versus the, those that shape public opinion, uh, 2016 being a good example of that. But it is really interesting that his number, president Trump's number in terms of the percentage of people, the percentage of voters who think he is going to win is so much higher than the percentages he's registering of people who are going to vote for him. Mm. It may say something as well about the, uh, the, the silenced Trump voter, the Trump voter who doesn't want to tell anybody that uh, he or she is voting for Trump. Uh, for example, the uh, author of the piece I referenced points to an economist YouGov poll that shows Trump down 49-40 nationally, but in that same poll, only 39%, again, registered voters say Biden will be Trump. So in a registered voter poll like that, uh, you know, it speaks to, well, if, if I um, don't want Trump to win, if I'm voting for Biden or I would vote for Biden if I voted, but uh, but but by a, a pretty sizable increment, uh, who I want to win and who I think is going to win are two different things Then maybe I don't come out. In Pennsylvania, a new Monmouth poll shows Biden trouncing Trump. And when asked who will win, the voters say the election is a toss up. Hmm. This is one of the reasons why some of the conventional election surveys have been unreliable, although, again, not all of them have been. And they not all of them were in 2016 either. But it is an interesting note. Uh, and uh, this dovetails with uh, why President Trump is pushing and not just allowing others to do for him, pushing Joe Biden's competence. And this may be the real concern that people have. Remember some polling finding that uh, Joe Biden, 40 percent of Americans believe Joe Biden has early onset dementia. And this is before you see him on stage. Nobody's rooting for this. Nobody's celebrating. Nobody's ridiculing. You're saying, and President Trump said it in no uncertain terms when he was point blank by Chris Wallace, that he's just not competent to do the job. Is Joe Biden senile? I don't want to say that. I say he's not competent to be president. To be president, you have to be sharp and tough and so many other things. He doesn't even come out of his basement mentally shot. Let him come out of his basement, go around. I'll make four or five speeches a day. I'll be interviewed by you. I'll be interviewed by the worst killers that hate my my guts. They hate my guts. There's nothing they can ask me that I won't give them a proper answer to. Some people will like it. Some people won't like it. I agree with that. But look, you answer the question. Let Biden sit through an interview like this. He'll be on the ground crying for mommy. He'll say, (laughs) mommy, mommy, please take me home. Well, we've asked him for an interview, sir. He can't do an interview. He's incompetent. Yeah. And uh, mommy, mommy, please take me home. Well, this is because Trump can't use that line in rallies since uh, states like Minnesota and Michigan, as he mentioned, are barring him from doing rallies. Uh, So, again, and by the way, just on that tangent, you know, Chris Wallace, I wish Trump was uh, more fast sell at the ready with facts, Uh, maybe had people briefing him better. Because the response when uh, Trump complained about Michigan and Minnesota not allowing him to hold rallies and suggesting that that was not about COVID, preventing COVID spread, that was about politics. Mm -hmm. Well, I said, well, well, you know, we did have something in Tulsa. Actually, the response should have been actually, Chris, no, we didn't. No, we did not. And uh, as you've heard on this show, if you caught uh, the segment we did on it, 
a study out last week from San Diego State academic and some of his colleagues that looked at the results of the gathering in Tulsa, the Trump rally in Tulsa, and could find no demonstrable evidence, no statistically significant evidence to support the case that Trump's rally in Tulsa resulted in any spike in cases, much less anything worse. So actually, no, Chris, that wasn't the case. And I wish Trump would have been ready to slap him down more forcefully. Uh, Trump also, again, colorful, even the people who don't like him. Trump showing some self-awareness. Well, that's okay. That's his only shot. That's his only shot. I agree. And those people know I'm doing a good job, but there's something in my personality that they don't like. Because, look, nobody's done what I've done. Uh, right. There's clearly something in a personality he doesn't like that uh, that people don't like. And so this is the time where he starts to pivot and present. Look, uh, you may not like me. And he could build upon that little riff you just heard there. You may not like me. And he said something like this previously. He should reiterate it. You may not like the way I communicate. You know, I'm a little bit brash. I'm a little bit more New York than much of the rest of the nation, perhaps. But just in terms of uh, on the merits, what I've done and what I plan to do and the choice before you. Again, what you saw this weekend, what you've seen for weeks on end in places like Seattle and Portland and New York and Chicago and Atlanta. And Dallas and elsewhere. That's what they want. Is that what you want? It's not what I want. It's not what I want for you. And the one thing I didn't like from the, the Trump interview, well, there's a couple of things, but that just I wish he would stop. I built this economy and I can do it again. We remove I from your lexicon as best you can. Try to be cognizant of it. We built this economy. My policy leadership on deregulation and tax relief to incentivize economic growth and the productive risk taking of America's great business people and entrepreneurs. You may think that's implicit in what he's saying. And to some extent it is. But you know what? It's better to make it explicit. It's better to say it straight away. It's better to distribute the credit for the job creation and the growth that was occurring before the lockdowns in knee jerk response to the virus. And I think if he would do that and get that sort of patois uh, as part of his presentation, he would do himself a world of good. This is what they want. This is what I want with for you, for you. This is what we did. This is what we can do again. It's, you know, just a five to ten degree turn, and it might turn out to make all the difference. Uh, coming up, uh, I want to uh, stay on the topic, but uh, get to the uh, matter of schools reopening, and particularly this op-ed, remarkable op-ed from a Washington State teacher in the New York Times. Uh, more coming up later. Show.com. Welcome back. I want to get to uh, school reopenings and the controversy that uh, is really astounding. A controversy where there should be none in terms of sending kids back to school, physically back to school. Another major school district, urban school district, uh, weighed in with their plan. That's the Chicago public school system following New York and others doing a hybrid 
under the Chicago Public School framework, which is not unique. Students in, in grades kindergarten through 10th grade will have two days of in-person learning, two days of remote work at home, plus three hours of real-time virtual instruction each Wednesday. The 11th and 12th graders, juniors and seniors, will mostly continue to learn at home. They're out, except for those who need additional support and those in vocational programs. Just as a sort of common sense question before we get into this. Kindergarten through 10th grade, two days in person, two days remote work at home, plus three hours of real-time virtual instruction. What is three hours of real-time virtual instruction or remote work at home look like for a kindergartner? <laughs> I mean, ma, hold the grilled cheese and tomato soup. Uh, I got a Zoom call with Teach. It's really just remarkable the things they get away with saying if they do so with some authority. And if, of course, they've induced enough fear to get people to go along, which is precisely the case. Now, remember, MSNBC, the lead propaganda channel for the left, arguably, did this uh, quick plebiscite of a bunch of pediatricians. Dr. Jack Torres reporting for NBC News and MSNBC. Would you send your kids back to school? I will. My kids are looking forward to it. Yes, period. Absolutely. Absolutely. As much as I can. (laughs) Without a hesitation. Without a hesitation, yes. I have no concerns about sending my child to school in the fall. I would let my kids go back to school. That came as a uh, stunning survey, the results of all those pediatricians that you just heard, to the anchor in MSNBC News. Wow, they all said yes, because they know the science just like anybody else who's paid even passing attention knows the science. And yet, two days of in-person learning. And that's not as bad as, you know, say, L.A. or San Diego or Atlanta, which is all distance learning, all remote learning, despite what we know from real-world data, real-world experiences from throughout the Western world, in addition to what we know about how deleterious it is for children to be relegated to remote learning only for their intellectual development as well as social development, how little teaching goes on, how much further behind in reading and math many will be. And, of course, this is disproportionately for minority kids. But, again, the politicians in these big cities are too busy saving lives to concern themselves with facts And unfortunately, the same goes for the teachers unions and many of the teachers. Not all. This is a truly remarkable op-ed in the New York Times over the weekend from Rebecca Martinson. She is a teacher at Northwest Career and Technical Academy in Mount Vernon, Washington. Cue the lifetime soundtrack. Every day when I walk into work as a public school teacher, I'm prepared to take a bullet to save a child. In the age of school shootings, that's what the job requires. But asking me to return to the classroom amid a pandemic and expose myself and my family to COVID-19 is like asking me to take that bullet home to my own family. I won't do it, and you shouldn't want me to. How dare you ask Ms. Martinson to go back and teach? You want the real kicker on this one? She teaches medical science and introduction to nursing to 11th and 12th graders at a regional skills center that serves students from 22 different high schools and 13 different school districts. Despite the fact that we know that uh, the number of fatalities under the age of 17 is basically nil. Uh, In point of fact, uh, in Florida, since this is getting so much coverage because of the uh, hatred the press corps has for Ron DeSantis as a Republican governor and uh, even more hatred as a unabashed Trump supporter, And because Florida so outperformed New York and America's governor, according to that same press corps, Andrew Cuomo, 
they've got to take Ron DeSantis down. So 265,000 new cases in Florida since June. But cases without context is the province of the hysteric, of the ignoramus, of the ideologue or the or the political hack, isn't it? The answer is yes, it is. This is what those who those adult impersonators who live in the fantasy world where trade-offs don't exist and you can completely insulate yourself from risk live. Uh, 265,000 cases since June. 100,000 cases over 45 years, 45 years old and older. 1,500 people have died in that cohort. The average age, 80 years old. 165,000 cases under 45 years old. 75 have died. So a 1.65 to 1 and uh, an infinitesimal fraction of the death count. As professor and noted epidemiologist John Unites at Stanford has said, if you are under 45 years old, your chances of dying of COVID-19 are almost zero. But of course, do you get any of that context in the conversation about anything COVID related, including returning to school, for goodness sakes, which, as so many people have weighed in, so many pediatricians, so many public health experts, there is no case, no case for not returning kids to school physically present in the classroom. And it is not a close call. And so in lieu of scientific evidence, you get this sort of sophistry from Rebecca Martinson, the teacher in Washington State, and uh, those like her. And uh, you have these sorts of silly exchanges between uh, President Trump and Chris Wallace over the mortality rate. I think it's the opposite. I think we have one of the lowest mortality it's rates true, in the sir. world. We, well, we, we're going to we take have, a look. We had 900 deaths on a single day. We will this, take a look. This week. A Ready? I, you, you can check you it out. please get me the mortality rate? And they go back and forth. Here's the point. And it's, Trump should have just ended. Chris. Uh, the CDC, which you're so want to cite, let's cite them, suggests that when we had two and a half million cases, infections, we probably at that time had more like 22 million. So we have no idea what the case fatality rate is. But if you believe what the CDC says about the number of people actually infected, then it is a fraction of the six tenths of one percent. That we have as the confirmed case fatality rate at present. End of conversation. We also know where the great majority of the death is occurring, how it could be how it could be and should have been and can be going forward prevented. And we know, again, going back to Dr. Ioannidis, under 45, the chance of death is virtually zero. It's not completely zero because there's no such thing as completely zero in this world of risk, but it's virtually zero. Daniel Horowitz writing conservative review. If the panic mongers were consistent, we'd close the schools every flu season. Every flu season, many more children die from the common ailment than from COVID-19. And unlike COVID-19, where the rare pediatric deaths are among those who have serious conditions, many of the flu deaths occur in perfectly healthy children. Could you imagine if uh, the press corps was memorializing each one of, say, the 174 uh, school aged children who died from the flu last year? But there's no politics behind this. Well, we're not treating this any 
we're, we're treating this differently for a good reason, not just for reasons in service of a larger political agenda. I think it's getting diff- more and more difficult with each passing day to defend that position. This is Dan Brown. on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Another violent weekend in Chicago. 70 shot, 10 fatally. Tell you one story, punctuate it, and how long it's been going on in Chicago, even as you see it now escalating in New York and Seattle and Portland and other big cities. Patricia Pearson, in 1995, her daughter was shot. She lived with bullets lodged in her shoulder until her death, claimed Patricia Pearson's second child in 1999. And last weekend, it claimed her third and last child, who at the age of 43, a father of three, was gunned down in the streets of Chicago. Uh Uh, More than 400 murders, more than 2,000 shootings just this calendar year so far. By way of comparison, New York, with two and a half times the population of Chicago, is seeing an increase, a spike in shootings and murders. I think shootings as of last week up 40-some percent, murders up 20-some percent. Their number of shootings, a little over 600. Chicago, over 2,000, to give you order of magnitude, to give you scale on this. And that doesn't even contemplate the story that made international headlines over the weekend, which was, the mob's descent on Grand Park in an effort to remove, you know, pull down the Columbus statue, as these vandals are doing around the country, and uh, a mob overwhelming a handful of Chicago police officers trying to protect the statue, injuring more than 18 officers, throwing frozen water bottles at them, fireworks. Uh, one officer uh, potentially might, a Chicago police sergeant reportedly might lose his sight as a result of the violent conflict with these Jacobins. And what's the response from the mayor of Chicago? Well, very similar that you get from Ted Wheeler in Portland or Jenny Durkin in Seattle. Unfortunately, a portion of the protesters turned violent, but there have also been several reports of excessive force by police. These are also unacceptable. So uh, to borrow a phrase that the left loves to apply to President Trump, according to Mayor Lightfoot of Chicago, there are good people on both sides and some bad people. It's a mix. Too close to call. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jim Pinkerton, co-chair of the Ray Coalition and contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So what do you think Trump's response should be? There's a report out that he may deploy federal agents to Chicago this week, similar to federal agents that were deployed to Portland when there was an effort to burn down a federal courthouse in Portland. Is that a good idea? Or if these big city mayors don't want President Trump's help and federal resources, should he say, "Okay, fine? Well, it's a good question. You know, we sort of had a civil war over the issue of federal supremacy or not, and we sort of decided then that the federal government should be there to prevent disorder, including secession. On the other hand, this is a crazy, chaotic, tragic, disaster situation, but it's not a full-blown civil war. So I think that if the mayor of Portland or the mayor Lightfoot in Chicago is actively hostile to the idea of the feds coming in, there's a former Chicago resident, but not there now, I, I might say, okay, if you don't want him, you do it your way. 
uh, you know, it's an, it's an experiment. Uh, we believe in capitalism, and so let's have an experiment as to what the no-policing philosophy looks like. Yeah, and in Minnesota, where they're uh, trying to uh, apply the no-policing philosophy to Minneapolis, as you wrote about at theamericanconservative.com in your piece uh, on the summer of love, to borrow from Jenny Durkin, the mayor of Seattle, you have the um, governor of Minnesota saying, uh, we'd like some federal disaster assistance for the damage that we allowed to be inflicted upon our communities, if nothing else. Right. I mean, uh, Mayor, uh, pardon me, Governor, wrote to President Trump and said, I want $15.6 million, please, to repair all the damage, including, you know, arson and looting. And the Trump administration turned him down. And that was kind of the point of my piece, that, and that is that, if you want to try the no policing philosophy, okay, then don't expect the government, the federal government, that is, to turn around and, and bail you out. That seems sort of reasonable. So if, if the Minnesota and Seattle and Portland want to let themselves burn down, then let's let them burn down. Now, of course, if the Democrats, including a hypothetical President Biden, want to change their mind and use the Department of Development and the rest of the federal government to, to the rebuilding of all these cities. Um, okay, uh, let's have a vote on it, though. Let's be sure to make to be sure that uh, uh, there's a roll call vote in Congress in 2021 about whether or not to get this aid or not, so that every uh, Democrat can. I know the mayor let the city burn down, but I think a new tax money to rebuild the city. That's my that's my proposition as I look to the 20. Uh, including, uh, you know, uh, uh, running for mayor, running, you know, Mayor Lightfoot running for re-election herself and so on. If this, if this is the approach she wants to take, let her take it. Well, uh, I think we'll have an experiment. When we come back, I, I want to pick up uh, on the, the question as to why all these mayors seem to be reciting the same lines. Uh, more with Jim Pinkerton, who is co-chair of the Ray Coalition and contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart right after seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back and uh, on friday we had jason rance on the program he's a radio talker out of uh, seattle tacoma market and he has uh, been providing, you've probably seen him on Tucker Carlson show and whatnot, some on-the-ground uh, coverage of what's happening both in Seattle and Portland. And uh, one of the things that uh, he responded to I thought was important to uh, replay, and we'll kick it around with Jim Pinkerton, who will rejoin us, is uh, the character of the actual mobs on the streets. And it was similar in Chicago over the weekend as they tried to remove that big Columbus statue from Grand Park in downtown Chicago. The uh, complete... Cultural appropriation of Black Lives Matter. This doesn't have much to do with Black Lives Matter, and it doesn't have much to do with police brutality. It has a lot to do with a bunch of anarcho-syndicalists and white kids who've got nothing better to do than rage against their government in whatever form they can find. No. When they say that these are Black Lives Matter protesters who are involved in this, they're flat-out lying. Certainly there's some crossover, but the main groups that are causing the violence that the federal officials and the local police force are dealing with are Antifa members and groups that are loosely aligned with what they believe to be an anti-fascist movement. This idea that it's simple, peaceful protesters just does not 
tell the honesty about what's going on in the grounds. They're literally trying to destroy buildings. They're trying to set up their own autonomous zone, much like the one we had here in Seattle. They're calling it the CLAT, the Chinook Land Autonomous Territory, which does not roll off the tongue at all. (laughs) And they're the ones who are instigating the violence. And we're hearing from the ACLU and local leaders, from Ted Wheeler to the governor, Kate Brown, trying to pretend that this is just federal officials coming in, overstepping their bounds. When the federal officials are coming in, because the local officials aren't doing anything to quell violence, we are at our 50th night of violence in Portland. And that was as of Friday, the CLAT. It sounds like an STD, doesn't it? Uh, Rance also made the point that um, to the question of why won't Mayor Durkin of Seattle, Mayor Wheeler of Portland, why won't they intercede? Why won't they uh, enable local law enforcement to address the violence? You're seeing on the local level is very similar to what happened early on in Seattle when Chaz slash CHOP was started. You had local leaders who didn't want to get involved because the people who are protesting were out on the streets who are committing the violence. They are the base of the local leadership here. And you don't want to piss off the base because you want to make sure that they keep you in power. So the second that Donald Trump said anything about Seattle, our mayor, Jenny Durkin, said, okay, now is my opportunity. This is Seattle versus Trump. And in the Seattle city, that is a winning argument. And the exact same thing right now is happening in Portland. For more on this, uh, again, rejoined by Jim Pinkerton, who is the co-chair of the Ray Coalition, contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart. Jim, is is that it with all these mayors? Why do their responses sound so similar? Is because, like in Seattle, like in Portland, the people that are committing the acts of violence are their base voters. Mayor Fry and you know Governor Waltz uh, there have to think that gee these are these are our core voters and we, we you know so they go to great lengths don't they to say there are good protesters who of course are my voters protesters and they probably live somewhere else and aren't my voters at all and so they bend over backwards and you know unfortunately for their, from their point of view people can you know watch on TV or YouTube or wherever just to see who. Uh, good mix, doesn't it? You know, it's sort of there's a pretty good overlap between, uh, you know, I mean, it's Antifa is a thing and Black Lives Matter is a thing, but there are plenty of people who are throwing bricks and looting and so on who seem to be a little bit of both. Right. And and then and it also presents the perfect political cover for them. Two things. Right. They can wrap themselves in the First Amendment and just talk about peaceful protesters petitioning their government. And there's no one who disagrees with that. That's why it's a straw man. And then secondly, as Jason Rand said, too, is it's an opportunity to juxtapose yourself against Trump. I know you don't like Trump, so just focus on not liking Trump. Don't focus on my job performance. Right. Any Democrat in the anti-Trump and sort of that that in their mind forgives everything they do or everything that they don't do. It's sort of a simple one, you know, uh, three-word answer. I'm not Trump. And that, okay, well, then you must be good. And and do you see this, what I see happening, and maybe I'm wrong, but, but starting to happen is it went from the conventional wisdom inside the beltway on the presidential race that uh, all Joe Biden has to do is be reasonable by comparison to Trump to win to now it's starting to turn. And all Trump has to do is be reasonable by comparison to Biden voters to win. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I think the Biden people uh, are, are pretty, if you talk to them here in town, they're, they're pretty confident that if they just keep this strategy up for the next you know, three and a half months, uh, you know, they'll be fine. So, you know, Biden has a hologram from a basement, uh, including perhaps not debating uh, Trump uh, this fall. 
Uh, they seem to think that's that's the way to go. And, and right now, the polls are supporting them. Uh, uh, you know, polls are, as they say, a snapshot. But uh, I, like, I certainly agree that you know, law and order is a winning uh, Republican issue and has been since the 1960s, and therefore it very much. Uh, behooves Republicans, including you know candidates not you know running for you know Congress and governor and mayor and so on, to emphasize order and emphasize protection. Uh, uh, we're we're going to have to test where the American people are on this in November. And does that twin in a way that it perhaps hasn't in the past for Republicans with K through 12 education? When you have, I know it's a state and local issue pri- primarily, but so is law enforcement. Um, when you have, for example, Milwaukee forbidding any school from reopening, public or private, uh, do Republicans promoting school reopenings, kids in school, educating kids. Is that an opportunity for them as well to go along with law and order and and, and, and talking about urban and suburban renewal and, and uh, reopening? Well, it, it's I mean, hard for me to imagine you know, what how the country could function if you know kids don't go to school. I mean, that's just I mean, it's. I mean, look, we're in this situation where the, the virus is such an overhang, but it, it does appear that the, the, the infection rate is rising, but the death rate is spreading in these places. And it's mostly because the people getting getting infected now are not in, in the high-risk population. They're, they're younger. And, you know, and, and so, I mean, it's, look, it's an extremely dicey situation, and I, you know, I... You know, I we're all in new territory in terms of what this epidemic looks like, but it it, it does seem to me that uh, the voters are starting to smell sniff out that closing the schools is make sure wrong uh, so long as Trump is in charge. He is Jim Pinkerton, co-chair of the Ray Coalition and contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart. Check out his uh, latest piece, which I'll check out. Making Demo- uh, I'll tweet out, I should say, making Democrats own their summer of love. Jim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, that ain't working. That's the way you do it. Get your money for nothing. Get your checks for free. We got something for microwave oven. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. Picking up on our conversation with uh, Jim Pinkerton uh, about uh, policing, I wanted to uh, fold in this back and forth that Trump had with Chris Wallace, where they on his uh, expansive Sunday interview yesterday, uh, they were arguing about whether or not Joe Biden advocated defunding police. And Trump referred to the uh, Biden Bernie Sanders manifesto. And uh, there's nothing specifically in there to that effect. But uh, go back to the interview he gave to this activist named Addie Barkin that we played on this show a couple weeks ago. And tell me that this doesn't constitute at least defunding the police in part and that it's not a fair criticism to say Joe Biden is all in with his base voters in reimagining, defunding or drastically cutting the funding of police to enlist, to, to reduce the amount of equipment, uh, resources at their disposal, and to offload some of the responsibilities we've traditionally left with local law enforcement to social workers and unarmed 
uh, city workers, you know, a la the way Berkeley is going and some of these other cities as well. Listen to the question that was posed and Joe Biden's answer. And again, it's digitized. Eddie Barkin's question is digitized because uh, the gentleman suffers from ALS, just as a reminder. Instead of sending two police officers with deadly weapons to that Wendy's drive through in Atlanta, we could have sent a wellness counselor and a tow truck, and then Ray's hard Brooks would still be alive today, and his three daughters would still have their daddy. Are you open to that kind of reform? Yes, I propose that kind of reform. We need significantly more help. That's why I call for significant increase in funding for mental health clinics and mental health pr- providers. We are desperately in need of that now. So, uh, again, the questioner asks, uh, send uh, unarmed uh, civilians, deputies, whatever you want to call them, and a tow truck to the Rashard Brooks DUI stop rather than police. Are you open to that? Yes, I propose that. Well, what is that doing? What is that? And what is this? Uh, Surplus military equipment for law enforcement. They don't need that. The last thing you need is an up-armored Humvee coming into a neighborhood. It's like the military invading. They don't know anybody. They become the enemy. They're supposed to be protecting these people. Become the enemy. Become the enemy. Remember that phrase. I repeat, become the enemy. Whether it's local or federal, whether they're in a Humvee or a police police, uh, squad, they're, they're the enemy then? Tell me again how unfair it is to characterize those positions, Joe Biden, his own words, with as consistent with the defund the police movement. In addition to that, we find over the weekend, Sarah Pearl describes herself as a supervising producer for the Biden campaign, repeatedly derided law enforcement and made calls for police departments to be defunded. In one post in June, she urged others not to call police officers pigs because, quote, pigs are highly intelligent and empathetic animals who would never racially profile you. She also retweeted a comment to a post that labeled cops as monsters who, quote, unquote, who, quote, don't deserve to be called pigs, unquote. She deleted the tweets after Fox News inquired about them. And that's who's around. Joe Biden. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. In his uh, wide-ranging interview with Chris Wallace on Sunday, President Trump talked about uh, the so-called cancel culture, which I actually think is a sanitized term, as I've said on this show. The purge is more appropriate in its uh, Soviet reminiscence. That's what it is. Chris Wallace was dutifully incredulous at this notion uh, that, uh, as Trump mentioned at Mount Rushmore and has said since, there is a radical leftist culture that has taken hold in some of our most important institutions. In fact, most of our important civic and uh, public institutions, including education, And, uh, of course, what's the pushback? Uh, Well, tell us what your view is on the Confederate flag. Here's how that went. It depends on who you're talking about, when you're talking about. When people proudly had their Confederate flags, they're not talking about racism. They love their flag. It represents the South. They like the South. People right now like the South. I say it's freedom of, of many things, but it's freedom of speech. So you're not offended by it? Well, I'm not offended either by Black Lives Matter. That's freedom of speech. And, and, you know, the whole thing with cancel culture, we can't cancel our whole history. We can't forget that the North and the South fought. 
We have to remember that. Otherwise, we'll end up fighting again. Uh, there's a good piece at the tablet by Peter Savodnik. He writes of the um, narrowing of the metaphysical gap between 19th century Russia and early 21st century America. We can reassure ourselves by repeating obvious truths. The United States is not czarist Russia. The present is not the past. History does not repeat itself. However, the similarities between the past and present are legion, the coarsening of the culture, our economic woes, our political logjams, the opportunism and fecklessness of our so-called elites, the corruption of our institutions, the ease with which we talk about revolution, as in Bernie Sanders' romanticization of a political revolution, the anger, the polarization, the anti-Semitism. But the most important thing is the new characters who are not that dissimilar to the old ones. And he goes through some of those in detail, which I'll leave there to speak at the general level and to bring in our friend Brendan O'Neill into the conversation. He is the editor of Spiked, spiked-online.com. Brendan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, how's it going? Uh, so the, the purge that's ongoing in the West, uh, certainly that would include um, the UK where you're stationed. And uh, this interesting sort of um, uh, czarist Russia to perhaps Soviet mentality that's taking hold in our institutions in the West. I think that's right. And it has lots of echoes of the past. I, I think it has lots of echoes of Mao's China in particular. Um, if you look at the Cultural Revolution in the late 1960s, it's actually quite similar to what we're living through now. We're living through, thankfully, at the moment, a more peaceful version of that. But, you know, that also involved tearing down supposedly offensive statues, setting them on fire, kicking them into rivers. Um, it also involved um, banning inappropriate books, um, young people storming through their campuses and expelling wrong thinkers. It was it was described by Mao as a war on old ways of thinking and unacceptable ways of thinking. And I think we're seeing something similar in the UK and the US and other parts of Europe, statues being torn down, books being metaphorically burnt, people being expelled from universities if they have the incorrect views. It does echo some of the darkest periods in the 20th century, I think. Yeah, and, and uh, it, the, the consistent character of this, and uh, this is what the piece I was referencing gets into as well. The character is that my enemies are not really people. They're not wholly human. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they're not to be afforded uh, uh, those rights that are enshrined in founding documents or, or under uh, secular law because they're impediments to, you know, the great uh, utopia that, uh, that, that exists right around the corner. That's right. There's, uh, there's such a culture of dehumanization at the moment. And I think it's really striking that we live in a time in which we don't just think that the people who disagree with us are wrong and should be engaged in debate. You know, people have thought that throughout history. I think many people are wrong, and I would like to debate with them and, and disagree with them and talk to them. What we have now in the cancel culture is a climate in which someone who disagrees with you is seen as evil. They are seen as morally corrupted, morally compromised, uh, beyond the pale, and deserving of nothing less than expulsion from polite society. You know, nothing can be done about their point of view. No debate is possible or even desirable, and therefore they just must be cast out. And I think 
the whole nature of cancel culture, as its name suggests. I think it's a very apt name for this climate. And I think it's great to see President Trump using that word, those words. I think I wish Boris Johnson would do likewise. The whole nature of cancel culture is to cancel people, wipe them away, turn them into an unperson, as George Orwell would put it, because, you know, it's now seen as completely unacceptable to disagree with the radical left or the politically correct left. And anyone who does risks being cast out, losing their jobs and uh, being treated in, in a very unforgiving way. Yeah. And few people are beyond their reach or at least beyond their targeting, maybe beyond their reach. But, mm -hmm. for example, what's happening to J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author, because of her uh, departure from the orthodoxy and trans rights. Now, of course, this uh, this uh, mobocracy, uh, anti-intellectual mobocracy online and, and in in our institutions. It's something she otherwise supported when it was positions she held. She doesn't so much like it now. That's right. So I hope I hope she learns a lesson. I mean, I've been on the opposite side to J.K. Rowling in pretty much every recent debate in the U.K., particularly Brexit. She was a hardcore Remainer, and I was a pretty hardcore Brexiteer. But I agree with her 100% on the trans issue. I agree with her that sex is real, you know, these are biological facts, and that a man cannot become a woman and vice versa. Now, it's down to each of us as individuals to decide how polite we are willing to be to trans people, and I'm willing to be very polite to trans people, and I'm willing to use their preferred names and so on. But sex is real, and you can't change it. I agree with J.K. Rowling on that. And the way she's been treated for saying that is a very good example of how vicious and nasty cancel culture can be. She is inundated with death threats, rape threats. People are sending her pornography. They're, they're littering her Twitter feed with pornographic pictures, basically sexually harassing her because she dares to believe in biological reality. But the, I think one of the reasons she makes them so furious is because she is uncancelable. She's too big to cancel. She's a global phenomenon. She's more an institution, really, than an individual. But I think the fact that she is standing her ground is a very positive thing, and it might help to shift the culture war in a positive direction over the next few months. Uh, those who are not so situated as J.K. Rowling, uh, working-class men and women who uh, uh, these uh, neo-Marxists are suggesting they're you know, pursuing revolution on behalf of. But in point of fact, they really despise these uh, men and women of uh, so-called lower status in their mind. This, you write about this in a piece, what they mean when they talk about white people. And we've seen this with Brexit. We've seen this with the yellow vests in France. We've seen this, of course, with the deplorables who voted for Trump in 2016 in America. Um, they're the real... Uh, uh, antipathy that the uh, elite and the woke have for uh, for for middle income uh, working class men and women. Uh, they hold them in complete and utter contempt. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. You know, they see Brexit voters as knuckle draggers and racists and xenophobes. They see Trump voters as just a bunch of stupid rednecks. Um, and the way in which they talked about the Gilets Jaunes in, in France, they just talked about them as racists and homophobes and fascists. You know, this is the kind of upper classes, the well-educated elites, the new elites, really looking down their nose in a really grotesque way at ordinary people who are simply exercising their right to vote or protesting on the street for more positive change. 
and they're treated in, in the most obscene way by these new woke elites. And I think it's really revealing because the woke elites, elites describe themselves as revolutionaries and radicals, and they see themselves as being in the tradition of uh, the more recent forms of left-wing politics. But one important difference is that they hate working-class people, and that's all there is to it. But I think one of the important truths about cancel culture is that it is really aimed at ordinary people. You know, it's not really aimed at J.K. Rowling. Everyone knows that she's going to carry on publishing books, and lots of other famous authors will carry on publishing books too. But it's, it's, there's a target beyond that target, and the broader target is ordinary people. And it's about sending a warning sign to the population at large, which says to them, if you step out of line, if you dare to disagree with us, we will do to you what we've done to J.K. Rowling, and it will have a worse effect on you because people have been losing their jobs. They have been shunned from uh, universities for holding those kinds of views. So the, the woke elite's contempt for working people is now crossing the line into using punishing measures against ordinary people if they ever step out of line in terms of the new ideology. He is Brendan O'Neill. He's the editor of Spiked Online, spiked-online.com. Brendan, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. School districts uh, in the private sector opening too. They're doing things a little bit differently than, say, CPS and some other public school districts are doing, including in uh, Yorkville, uh, where. Uh, Parkview Academy is uh, getting back to school, and uh, they're not including a mask mandate for students and teachers. That uh, prompted a lawsuit from Governor Jelly Belly, uh, as well as uh, other pub- you know the public health officials, just as named plaintiffs. In addition to Parkview, it also names the Board of Education of Downstate Hudsonville Community Unit School District 1 and Families of Faith Christian Academy in Shanahan. Uh, the letter from the state uh, to uh, uh, to the state from Parkview. Parkview cannot in good conscience give their legal and moral obligations to those they serve uh, fully by if they fully implement state guidance and uh, basically questioned um, there's no legal authority that uh, is attached to the guidance. It's just that guidance uh, for more on this. We're pleased to be joined by Jed Davis, board president of Parkview Academy in Yorkville. Jed, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So, you know, why not just uh, be uh, neighborly and sporting and just comply with the governor's order and just put masks on everybody? Yeah, it's a great question, Dan. But we really, um, first off, we're not anti-mask. We're not anti-face coverings. We're really pro-parent choice. And our parents are loud and clear on that front that we really want that decision to be in the hands of parents, which I think is where it rightfully belongs. So that is really how we put the state on notice 
Um, that document re you refer to, 63 pages of guidelines, but they use words like must wear face coverings at all times. So we were kind of at a crossroads on that one, knowing what we were going to do as a school and then kind of what the state was mandating through that letter or through those guidance documents. Hey, listen, uh, Jed and you country rubes out there in Yorkville, you have the governor talking. He is a man of science and data. He has said this is what the science and data says everybody should do. So, yeah, yeah, parental choice, this and that. You just comply. You just do what you're told. Why would not you do what you're told? <laughs> that that is really I that science and data. Um, I was talking with our attorney just about this last night. We hear that all the time from the governor's mouth. And if you really look at the data, we're about 115,000 people in Kendall County. We've tested 15 over 15,000 people roughly have been tested, and only 1,125 of them have been positive. So you're looking, and, and unfortunately, 21 people have passed. But at the end of the day, you're looking at less than 1% contracting COVID in Kendall County and a death rate of 0.018. So even by the state's own definition in the Illinois Emergency Management Act, there is no public health emergency in Kendall County, which allows us, in our legal opinion, freedom to implement our own guidelines from a safety and health perspective. Uh, what about uh, teachers there? Um, I mean, it's one thing for parents, you know, some 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 uh, recalcitrant parent who wants to be the nail that sticks out and uh, has to be hammered down by our fearless leaders and dear leaders, I should say. Um, what about uh, the teachers? Um, there was um, an op-ed in the New York Times we mentioned earlier in the show this over the weekend that suggests that uh, teachers should not go back to school and you shouldn't even ask teachers to go back to school because it's like uh, not only potentially taking a bullet for her kids or his kids, but also bringing that bullet back home to their family. Yeah, we've had some some crazy messages coming into the school, very similar from people outside of Parkview. Mm -hmm. But the people who know better, are who know better than you about what you should <laughs> yeah. be doing at Parkview. Yes. OK, sorry. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Um, but our teachers overwhelmingly are supportive of our actions. They're really anxious to get back into the classroom. Um, we had somebody even ask that question on Facebook the other day, trying to, like, catch us, per se. And, and a lot of teachers commented back saying, we can't wait. We're looking forward to it. And we're back Monday through Friday full time. Um, so we're, we're back. Full time? It. What? No. No, you're one of these. There's one of these Brian Kemp types uh, doing human experiments in school. That's with a full-time. Perish the thought. How did that come about, uh, full-time schooling? I guess parents want uh, the education they're paying for. Is that maybe something to do with it? Yeah, very accurate. We're not, we're not supported by any churches. We're not supported by outside organizations. We're supported by our families. So the, the sad thing is, is that this lawsuit, is really Parkview by name, but it's a it's an an attack against the families and students of our school. And better that uh, that we shut you down over the issue of the, uh, at least according to the science, relatively ineffectual masks as uh, particularly as it pertains to just putting any old face covering on a surgical mask or a face covering, which do nothing, absolutely nothing, not a scintilla of scientific evidence to support them. 
and I'm happy to go chapter and verse, but you probably already know it. Um, Better to shut down the schools uh, until we comply with a COVID security transmission theater than uh, to risk anything and allow children to be educated. Oh, by the way, except you're risking all the sorts of negative consequences from children not being in school. Yeah. Yeah, the governor's after us for a temporary restraining order. We have a hearing next Monday on that very issue to try to kind of get us into compliance um, while this issue plays out in the courts. And so uh, 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 assuming he gets an injunction, I mean, are you guys going to go to the mat on this or uh, is is sort of the the overriding matter of importance get kids back in school and if we get pushed around by the state uh, rather than interminable litigation if we're not going to be able to start school we'll we'll comply so we can start school you know we we talk to all of our parents there's really like five key things that they are looking for for a return to school one of them was the option of, of whether or not to wear a mask so even if we lose and that is the reality the other four still hold true so we're very confident in that regard that our parents are dedicated to the mission and vision of Parkview. That being said, we are willing to push this to the furthest extent possible through our legal representation because, again, I think there's a larger picture at play. And regardless of the outcome of the TRO, which I pray goes in our favor, we will continue to push this forward through the courts and, and believe confidently in our position in that regard. He is Judd Davis. He's the board president of Parkview Academy in Yorkville. Judd, thanks for joining us, and good luck with your uh, legal fight with the state. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This uh, video that has gone viral, and deservedly so, that uh, appears to show Chinese prisoners, Uyghur Muslim prisoners, blindfolded and handcuffed, being transported in northern China. This video was put to the Chinese ambassador to UK, Liu Zhongming, uh, uh, on the BBC. And here's what he had to say about it. Here's the, the I think, the pretty ineffectual denial or attempt to muddy the issue. Why people are kneeling, blindfolded and shaven and being led to trains in modern China. Why, what, what is going on there? I do not know where you get this uh, videotape. You know, sometimes you have a transmit, uh, your transfer of a prisons and uh, prisoners, you know, in any country. Um, but, but just what is happening here, Ambassador? 
I do not know why did you get this uh, video the, clip. The, the, and, the, uh, these, these have been going around the world. They've been authenticated by Western intelligence agencies and by Australian ex uh, experts who say these are Ouija people. Let me tell you this. The uh, uh, so-called uh, uh, Western intelligence keeping up make this a false acquisition against China. They said one million Ouija yes. has been uh, persecuted. You know how, how big, how, how many population Xinjiang has? It's just about 40 years ago, it's a four or five million. Now it's 11 million people. And people say, you know, we impose, uh, we have a, a ethnic cleansing, but the population has doubled in the 40 years. According, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but according to your own local government statistics, the population growth in Uyghur jurisdictions in that area has fallen by 84% between 2015 and 2018. That's not right. I, said, well, that, I, I gave you an official figure. You ask me, I give you this figure as a Chinese ambassador. This is a very official figure. In the past 40 years, the Uyghur population increased, the, 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 the population in Xinjiang increased to double. The population doubled. So there's no so-called restriction of the population. There's so, no so-called false uh, uh, abortion and so on. Yeah, the population doubled, but the Uyghur portion of that population declined, and uh, he tries to paper over that distinction, which that uh, BBC reporter Andrew Barr does a nice job of making sure the viewer understands the propagandizing the ambassador is doing. Let's start there on China with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks to be with you. I was having a little PTSD there. I felt like I was listening to Baghdad Bob. Well, yeah, you know, the, the question continues. Okay, we know that uh, the CHICOMs are lying to us. We know that they are engaged in gross human rights abuses of the Uyghurs and the Hong Kongans and uh, many other Chinese. What are we going to do about it? What should we be doing well, about it? I think the U.S. government has been spot on if you've been following the series of sanctions and statements from the U.S. government. Terrific speech last week by A.G. Barr kind of really laying this out. I think the question we should be asking is not what's going on in the public sector. I think the question we have to ask is what's going on in the private sector. So for all these companies which are so strong believers in corporate responsibility and they have to give millions of dollars to leftist causes because they really believe in human rights and civil society and everything else, they have to ask themselves, what connections do they have with Chinese companies, all of which relate to the government, which is engaged in mass surveillance, mass detention, forced sterilization, forced labor in their economic activities, in their connections with government officials, in their connection with military officials. And I think companies doing business in China have to audit that and have to be held accountable for what they're doing. Uh, well, that's certainly something that uh, A.G. Barr said last week. And uh, in addition to American corporations, he singled out uh, previously. Uh, now he went right after Hollywood. Hollywood actors, producers, directors pride themselves on celebrating freedom and the human spirit. And every year at the Academy Awards, Americans are lectured about how this country falls short of Hollywood's ideals of social justice. But now Hollywood regularly censors its own movies to appease the Chinese Communist Party. The censorship infects not only versions of movies that are released in China, but also many shown in American theaters to American audiences. Time to call those doing the bidding of China on American soil to task as well. 
And I think, you know, we all look very skeptically at the National Basketball Association and their economic ties and interests in China and the great reluctance of the league to allow or endorse or permit any kind of criticism of Chinese behavior. People need to do a lot of soul searching here. They are literally speaking out both sides of their corporate mouths. I mean, their behavior that the Chinese are engaging in is so far beyond the pale of unacceptable behavior. And to see the vast majority of companies essentially try to dismiss it or look the other way is pretty pathetic. When we come back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, I want to get to a piece by George Friedman that suggests that we are in no such Thucydides trap with China. Uh, more with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano right after this. So wake me up when it's all over. When I'm Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Heritage Foundation. And as I mentioned before the break, this piece by George Freeman, George Freeman Stratford, respected geopolitical thinker. He uh, suggests something that prompts the question, at least for me, perhaps the best thing we can do is just cut China off altogether and uh, do the precise opposite of what we've done the last 20 years, trying to figure out a way to constructively engage, now constructively disengage and isolate to the extent possible, because it turns out that the uh, Thucydides trap that deep thinkers like you like to talk about, it's potentially a real thing. But not with respect to China, argues George Friedman. The error is the idea that China is a rising power. China is rising to the point that it can even challenge the United States. That's an error. The argument that the U.S. may overreact is based on this error. The most important thing to understand about China is that its domestic market cannot financially absorb the product of China's industrial plant. Yes, it's grown, but that growth has made it a hostage to foreign customers. And so there is no rising China that is going to lead us inevitably to war. And so perhaps the response is more aggressive, constructive disengagement. Yeah. So for folks who aren't familiar with the Thucydides trap, this is from a book by uh, an article in a book by Graham Allison. And it's a reference to uh, the Peloponnesian Wars, the difference between Sparta and Athens and the conflicts between rising powers and powers in existence. It was a crap book. Uh, it was bad history. And I agree with Freeman. It's a bad analogy to the way it looked at the relationship between the United States and China. I, you know, I completely agree that trying to accommodate China's rise was a huge mistake. It was like accommodating an out-of-control teenager by giving them a credit card, the keys to the car, and a, and a, and a six-pack of malt liquor. On the other hand, I think we have to grow our own economy, and we don't want to do things that damage our own economy. What I care about is that we, where China is doing things which impinge on the interests of U.S. allies and the United States, that we take a strong stance. I think this administration has actually adopted the right strategy for dealing with China. And I think that the Chinese government, by its actions in many ways, demonstrates that it's feeling that pressure. I do worry about kind of over-investing in disengagement, right? You're spending so much money, time, and resources in disengaging from things that are important that that's kind of a waste of resources. Uh, well, okay, so, let, um, you know, the Thucydides uh, comments notwithstanding, what about Braxton Bragg? Will you go to the, the mat for Braxton Bragg? President Trump did. Listen. Go to the community, say, how do you like the idea of renaming Fort Bragg? And then what are we going to name it? You're going to name it after the Reverend Al Sharpton? 
What are you going to name it, Chris? Tell me what you're going to name it. Fort Sharpton. Jim, what do you think? Here's where the president has a point. And, and look, I was never one, as a former military officer and military historian, never in favor of naming federal posts after Confederate generals. Never thought it was a good idea. But to the president's point is these installations transcend the people they were named after. When you say Fort Bragg today, you don't think about some guy on horseback in the Civil War. You think about young kids, 18 years old, jumping into Normandy in the pitch black and fighting for their lives. There's this enormous history of these military installations. And, and the president, I think, has a fair point where we have a fair conversation about this. Do we want to erase the courage and accomplishments and service and sacrifice of over 100 years of military history? Because it just happens to be named after somebody that, that maybe isn't a paragon of virtue. Well, because they don't well, – well, well, the courts don't well, mean that anymore. They mean, they mean us. Also, too, and just, I, I just yeah. on just on the point of Braxton Bragg, uh, you know, history is complicated. I mean, Braxton Bragg also fought for this country in the Spanish-American War. So and did Robert E. Lee and other people. But look, yes, I, look, I, right. I, but they're traitors, and I get that. And, you, know, you know, I'll give you a different example. At Washington Lee University, you know, Lee spent the last half of his life trying to bring the country back together, and I think that's something worth noting and celebrating. So, if you want to honor. You know, Robert E. Lee for his post-Civil War accomplishments and trying to heal the nation. I'm fine with that. But this is where I think this is the point is, is when we talk about our history, we don't want to whitewash it away. You know, take Christopher Columbus, right? Christopher Columbus was an explorer and an adventurer. And here we are trying to get a new generation of Americans to get excited about going into space and braving into the unknown. When you wipe away Christopher Columbus, okay, you take away the fact that, you know, he's to help start the slave trade, but you also abolish the idea of, of the idea of adventure and courage and exploration. This is why these kinds of things need to be conversations. They don't need to be mobs dragging down statues, people doing things just for political gain. Uh, an, an aspect of the purge that's not talked about enough is uh, how it plays out in military, in the branches of our military. Uh, Mo Brooks, Republican rep from Bama, uh, the U.S. Army's Equity and Inclusion Agency uh, has a course entitled Operation Inclusion. The agency promoting the line that if you support enforcing immigration law, say things like all lives matter, you're a white supremacist. Uh, he, uh, Brooks is the one, Representative Brooks is the one who found out the agency had organized these seminars to reeducate the uniformed and civilian personnel at Redstone Arsenal in Alabama. In addition to that, we've got um, Christopher Rufo over at the Manhattan Institute points out, uh, finding, uh, finds out that a private diversity consulting firm conducting a training titled Difficult Conversations About Race in Troubling Times for several federal agencies. Uh, and uh, the trainers are asked, uh, at, at, the trainers ask white managers to create safe spaces for black employees, what it means to be black and seeing their pain and so on and so forth. You know, this is all basically the Robin D'Angelo white fragility uh, race hustling industry. And uh, the military and federal agencies are uh, diving in head first. Problem? Yeah, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me after 9 11 when we were going to fight terrorists, so we reached out to a whole bunch of organizations to help us understand Islamic and Islamic radicalism, and, and some of them were guys that actually helped plan 9-11. Uh, you know, I think you know, DOD has already repudiated that, that training, so has the Army. But, I mean, look, our federal agencies need to be much, much smarter about this. The, the idea isn't to bring partisan politics into government, 
government and indoctrinate our employees and military citizens. It's to, it's to have them act responsibly in the workplace. And if we have yahoos that can't understand the difference between that, then, then they shouldn't be working for us. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. All right. See you, my friend. back to the show. Well, uh, Kanye West uh, had, uh, he is the birthday party candidate for president, in case you've forgotten. He had his first campaign event yesterday afternoon in South Carolina. Uh, now, he's not going to be on the ballot in South Carolina, but he had an event there nonetheless. And uh, it was a um, wild and woolly affair. If you think uh, President Trump goes on tangent after tangent at his rallies, you haven't seen anything yet if you haven't watched a Kanye West event. He did get into this area again on the topic of respect for life, pro-life, and his position, personally pro-life, a bit of a cop-out position, but he's learning, personally pro-life, though he'd keep abortion legal if he were president of the United States. And also, he would also pay anybody who has a baby a million dollars. Well, that's one way to uh, jumpstart the birth rate in this country, I suppose. But uh, it was interesting, his uh, tangent on the life issue, since he had received so much pushback from his comments on Planned Parenthood and their racism in locating their mills in minority neighborhoods. That's not gone on unnoticed by Kanye. Kanye West talking about uh, his own struggles with being a consistent champion of life, both with his daughter as well as experience in his past with his parents and the assertion by Kanye that uh, his father was opposed to uh, having his mother bear Kanye and what a less interesting world that would have been without him. So even if my wife were to divorce me after this speech, she brought North into the world, even when I didn't want to. She stood up and she protected that child. You know who else protected a child? Who do you think, who do you think might have protected a child? got a little emotional that high-pitched uh, wailing was Kanye uh, trying to talk through reminiscing about his dad wanting to have him aborted so you know much like the uh, Oval Office meeting with Kanye and Jim Brown and President Trump it's uh, a bit unconventional to say the least but uh, you know Kanye as a spokesman for life even imperfectly uh, but sharing his own uh, personal accounts both with his daughter and his family as well as the relationship 
with his parents and um, apparently the disagreement about uh, whether to bring him into this world that his parents had and how emotional that was. Perhaps that will uh, reach people that otherwise wouldn't have been reached. So Kanye is a guy that's going to color outside the lines. It's going to be a little messy. But, you know, I think you want to give him some birth here, even as he deals with his own, like, diagnosed mental health issues. I want to give him some birth here to maybe happen upon some truths that uh, he can help to advance in ways that many other people that, do, that don't have his bandwidth cannot. the fake news he's always got the real story this is the dan Proft show you are fake news the world is a complicated place you need someone to expose the political fakers fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is dan Proft, and this is the dan Proft show Welcome back to the show, uh, memorializing uh, John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, who uh, died on Friday at the age of 80. The Wall Street Journal editorial board opined his life is worth celebrating for its own sake, but it's all the more valuable for what it says about the progress of his country. One of 10 children of a sharecropper in Alabama when state power enforced white supremacy in the American South. Lewis dreamed of being a preacher, but he had a political awakening over civil rights while attending American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville. He led the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the early 60s. He became the most prominent young leader of the civil rights movement that broke Jim Crow. The arc of Lewis's life and career shows how much the South and America have changed. Born into a world of segregated schools and lunch counters, Lewis became a political activist and in 86 won election to Congress from Georgia, serving there until his death. 45 years after the 63 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Lewis spoke, America elected a black president. And uh, the Wall Street Journal notes uh, differences on policy. Sure, John Lewis was uh, an American hero as a civil rights leader. I wouldn't say the same as a congressman, and I think you can separate the two, much like we do with John McCain. Uh, At least I do. American hero as a military man, uh, not so much as a politician. Something else, though, that uh, went largely unremarked upon with the left's tributes to John Lewis. He famously forgave George Wallace, Alabama's segregationist governor in the 60s, as an example of reconciliation. And who is advocating for reconciliation today? John Lewis actually lived through all this and yet understood the power and the need for reconciliation. And that's wholly rejected by the prevailing attitude of the cultural elite today, particularly those like the 1619 Project. Sort of remarkable where we are today. Trader Joe's, the uh, millennial-focused grocery store chain, under fire for its generic labeling, like Trader Joe's use a tra- Trader Ming's to brand the chain's Chinese foods, Trader Jose's for the Mexican foods, and so on and so forth. Well, that's uh, exoticizing other cultures is what they've been accused of, and they need to end that whole line of marketing and branding. That's where we are today. John Lewis forgiving George Wallace to today. The big uh, fight is over sports teams' nicknames, statues and trader joe's branded lines of products remarkable isn't it sad in 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 some ways considering as the wall street journal mentioned how far we've come otherwise for more on this please to be joined by dominic green life and arts editor of spectator usa contributor to the journal and the new criterion dominic thanks for joining us appreciate it hello dan good to be here good to be here and you wrote about something we talked about quite a bit last week these just remarkable posts at the uh, National Museum of African-American History and Culture 
these attributes of so-called white culture that I think were supposed to be intended as negatives, things like hard work and objective thinking, and were, I guess, and this is sort of where the uh, identitarian road leads you, you had the African-American Museum of History and Culture effectively promoting white supremacy. Well, what it's doing is saying that certain kinds of behavior, as you're saying, are white behaviors. For instance, rational, linear thinking. This is nonsensical in two ways. Firstly, most white people are no more capable of rational, linear thinking than anybody else. The second thing is there is no unique racial franchise on any kind of thinking. This is lunacy, in fact. It's also quite provincial, I think, of the museum, because uh, are the Chinese not capable of rational linear thinking? Are people in Africa, in Europe, in India, and anywhere else outside the U.S. incapable of these things? Or is it, or do these kind of racial behaviors apply to people only in the U.S. and not, for instance, in Canada or Mexico? It makes no sense at all, I think, in historical terms to talk about it like this. It makes no sense in terms of sociology or any other way of assessing people's behavior. And it certainly makes no sense at all in terms of promoting reconciliation with history, which is a very complicated business and is not served by putting out nonsense in some of our highest and most important cultural institutions. Also, too, I mean, this is a big one, particularly because it's uh, the target of the formal Black Lives Matter organization as well, the neo-Marxist, the nuclear family. Well, uh, gosh, the nuclear family is, uh, again, something, as you were describing, rational thinking as transcends race and culture and also was a feature of black America, more so black America, white America, Latino America until the last uh, 30 or 40 years. And the results of it no longer being such a feature have been catastrophic. I'm afraid to say, yes, the data is in and the data in this is completely colorblind. The truth is. If you want your children to have a good start in life, having two parents gives them a better start than one, just as staying in school gives them a better start than not going to school. All of these things are well established. One of the strange things, which would have seemed stranger perhaps to someone like John Lewis, is that these ideas, these crazy ideas, have been around for quite a while. They have been around for a good 50 years or more. And so we've had time to test this thinking against reality. And the idea that the nuclear family is some kind of racially exclusive capitalist conspiracy is nothing. And we've proven that there remains no alternative, in fact, to it. So for a major institution, the Smithsonian's institution, which is a significant African-American institution, perhaps the most significant one in the country to promote this, does no service to anybody. Well, except to the ideologues, right? The ideologues whose game is is to perpetuate the poverty industry, not to uplift poor people. And so what they're really proposing here, even though they took these uh, uh, graphics down, they kept the whole riff on whiteness, which is, you know, the Robin D'Angelo white fragility nonsense, Peggy McIntosh, Robin D'Angelo, that whole set. But, I mean, it's really victimization. They're in the business of big government. They're in the business of promoting that poverty infrastructure that really hasn't served those who are living in poverty particularly well as evinced by all the societal ills that we documented very well over the last 40 years. It serves an academic elite who are very rarefied and very buffered from reality. One of the strangest things about this is that the leading theorists of this very often tend to be white. And their major market is um, only now becoming schools and so on. But it's already well established in corporate training. 
In other words, companies which wish, wish to insure themselves against the bad publicity that could arise from an accusation of racism in the workplace. Companies can buy in this program as a form of coverage and make their employees sit through it and so on. That is the main business that is being done here. This is a private corporate business and the fees are astounding. These nutters can get $10,000 for an hour's lecturing and the ideas they're putting out have no academic basis whatsoever. And is there any way to unwind this or even to try to provide more balance at this point? I mean, it seems with the advent of the uh, identity studies departments 30 years ago, at least, you know, it's so now ingrained in campus culture, which has now extended to the culture at large. You know, how do you see this ending other than in these contradictions, but those contradictions not leading to any paradigm shift? Well, I honestly have to say we're in a very difficult moment. I mean, as you know, I normally go for ridicule when somebody's asked me to believe something which I know is completely absurd. But there are real world costs to be had in ridicule or standing up to this. If you are in a work environment and you're meant to be going through the process of training to see everything in terms of white fragility and so on, and if you object to that, then that, of course, is going to damage your prospects. And it's a very um, dangerous thing to do for somebody to stand up to this. That said, there are people who are able to, and, and we have to. We have to say that this is, you know, this is a serious, serious matter. The history of African-American people is a serious matter. Slavery and its memories and its effects, these are among the most important of all matters in American history, and it's vital that they are spoken about in a historically sensible way. And it's vital that we don't allow them to be hijacked, in effect, for what is little more than a scam. Writing uh, over in Tablet, Isabella Tabarovsky, who is a uh, Eastern European descent, she writes about uh, the Soviet mentality she sees taking hold in, in America, in the West generally in America. She, uh, I, yeah. she, she writes that the more loyalty you pledge to a group that expects you to participate in rituals of collective demonization, the more we'll ask of you and the more you, too, will feel controlled. How much of your own autonomy as a thinking, feeling person are you willing to sacrifice for the collective? What inner compromises are you willing to make uh, in this, for the sake of being part of the group? It seems to me that those are great questions that should be put to people in these moments of purging. I think they are. And as somebody who spent a good few years teaching in universities here, I have to say people all the time say to me, well, I would publish this, or I would disagree with this, or I would say something, but you know, the professional cost is too high. It's very easy to create a chill in terms of free speech and uh, free expression. But when you look at the people who are doing this, it's unbelievable. I mean, the, the idea of, of practicing Zen socialism, for instance, which is being taught in the same institution as the author of the uh, NAAC uh, white uh, you know, behavior, I won't name it, but uh, Zen socialism, whatever that is, it's not going to do you any good. And, but yet people are, are going along with it because there is an enormous peer pressure and intimidation. There are real world costs to be paid for standing up to this. He is Dominic Green, life and arts editor of Spectator USA, contributor to the Wall Street Journal and New Criterion. Dominic, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you, Dominic. podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
Welcome back to the show. We uh, spoke about uh, the Chinese communists a little bit last hour with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano from the Heritage Foundation. But let's delve a little deeper uh, with respect to the dilemma presented to American business in terms of dealing with the Chinese, particularly as Attorney General Barr has uh, weighed in. Uh, generally speaking, with American business and more recently, specifically with respect to Hollywood and their relationship with the Chinese. And, of course, we've talked about uh, the NBA's relationship that was put on full display uh, after uh, Daryl Morley's tweet heard around the world. For all uh, for for more on all of this, uh, delving more deeply into what we can expect to see from these various economic American economic sectors, American business sectors. With respect to the Chinese going forward with more profile on their uh, repression of uh, weaker Muslims and Hong Kongans and Chinese uh, citizens more generally. Pleased to be joined again by Chris Fenton, producer, former president of DMG Entertainment and author of Feeding the Dragon Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA and American Business, which is scheduled for release uh, just in a few days here, July 28th. I'm sure you can... Uh, pre-order online. Chris Fenn, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, Dan, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So, you know, give us your, your perspective as uh, particularly from Hollywood uh, on uh, where, you know, the big uh, players in Hollywood stand vis-a-vis China today. Has that moved at all with the higher profile the Chinese communists are getting internationally uh, with covid with the persecution of Uyghur Muslims uh, and with uh, American businesses being encouraged to, if not onshore, at least get out of China as part of your supply chain? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, there is a lot of awareness of the problem. The question is, is anybody doing anything about it? Um, And if you look at, obviously, I come from the Hollywood community. I have a Hollywood background. Uh, the Hollywood community tends to lean left. Um, <laughs> lean? <and it's> awesome. <laughs> well, yeah. okay. I'm very nonpartisan with this yeah. issue because I do feel like China, um, tackling the challenge of China is both a red and blue issue. Like there is no way we're going to be able to tackle this challenge. It's a massive challenge. It's a very, very entangled web that we have created over the last 30 years with that country. And there's no way just the Republican side can take take control and take the reins of this and make it work. The Democrats have to jump into it, too. And it's one of my biggest frustrations because I am both I you know, I'm a country first voter and I'm somebody that talks to both red and blue regularly. And I just I'm trying to wake up the blue side to this. So you have two issues. One is half the country doesn't want to talk about it. Right. Number one. And then number two is we are a free market capitalistic society and we embraced this rampant globalism over the past 30 years as something that was in the best interest of all Americans. So you do have a massive follow the buck problem where 
um, all industries, all companies, all C-suite executives really want to bury their heads in the sand on this issue because there's so much money on the line and there's so much investor and shareholder pressure to keep the game going. But where, right? are, where, where are all these social justice warriors in Hollywood that uh, love to take uh, on uh, causes? Uh, they're, they're seeing the same things we're seeing with respect to minorities being persecuted in China. This would seem like an, a wonderful opportunity for them to make a principled stand and say, I don't want to be part of Chi- you know, Chinese communist funded movies and the like. Yeah, I mean, it's and we saw it also with the NBA. The problem is you have what is going to be the largest market in the world uh, for for Hollywood. It's the second largest, soon to be first for the NBA. It's obviously the second largest market and is only getting bigger. Um, You have massive investor and shareholder pressure to keep that revenue growth going. So here's the issue. Any executive that comes out and speaks up about this can just simply be replaced, right? So they become a sacrificial lamb. If LeBron James steps up and says, free Hong Kong, I support what, you know, Daryl Morey's tweet was, he gets canceled out in China. He loses his whatever, $50 million a year, and somebody else just steps in there. If Bob Iger does it for Disney, they'll replace him with somebody else. Um, What needs to happen is not have this sort of whack-a-mole, sacrificial lamb situation where every man for himself, speak up for your principles, you get replaced, somebody else comes in. We need to create rules of engagement and a new way that we address the China challenge moving forward so that everybody has the weight of the United States behind them when they speak up. So, for instance, um, Bill Barr, uh, Attorney General, brought up this this movie, World War Z, which I spend uh, about five pages in a chapter talking about. And, and it's, a, it's flattering to know that my book has been making the rounds in Washington, D.C., because it has woken up a lot of people to the issues. Um, the China Task Force has it now, and they're doing research out of it, and it's um, hopefully making a difference. But if you look at the way World War Z was tackled, if Paramount said no to the CCP directive of what changes they wanted done, Paramount would have been retaliated against by the Chinese market, not just for that movie, but for all their movies. We've seen that before. So if America gets behind this and says, hey, we're not going to handle cross-border censorship, like removing the Taiwanese flag from Tom Cruise's jacket in the upcoming Tom Cruise movie around the world so that Taiwan's issues with China aren't seen by people in Germany or the U.S. or whatever. We're not going to stand for that anymore, CCP. But it's not just that studio that's standing up to you. It is the weight of the United States because this is the way we want all companies and all executives and all industries to behave. And if there is retaliation, you will get the weight of the country behind that leverage to say no more CCP. You're going to allow them access. These are the rules of engagement and we're not going to put up with this anymore. And hopefully After we put those rules together, we also pull in some of our traditional Western allies to back us up. Because the last thing we want to do is shut Paramount or Disney or Nike out of it and suddenly have 
Adidas in there or Studio Canal or Bollywood or whatever it is replacing it. We don't want that whack-a-mole situation. We want to have the Western alliances and ourselves behind this agenda. He is Chris Fenton. He's a producer, former president of DMG Entertainment, author of Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion-Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business, which releases July 28th. And you can pre-order at all the usual places, I have no doubt. And uh, interesting perspective as somebody coming from Hollywood making this case on China. So it's, it's, it's rather unique and, as you can tell, provocative. Chris, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck with the book. Dan, I so appreciate it, and I so appreciate the extra the, the point of views that you and your audience has, and I think this discussion needs to be had, and constructively, because there is a way to do this that's America first, and that is the priority. Absolutely. Chris, thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Cause they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Yeah, and the campus beat takes us to... uh, Loyola University, New Orleans, and economics professor Walter Block. I read Walter Block's book, uh, Defending the Undefendable, gosh, maybe as an undergrad, so 25 years ago, and I think it was written a good 20 years prior to that. Um, He's a libertarian academic. That used to not be that controversial a thing, but uh, now he's the subject of dueling change.org petitions. Fire Walter Block. No, give Walter Block a pay raise. Fire Walter Block because he's a racist and an ableist who doesn't believe the Americans with Disabilities Act should be in force and who doesn't find slavery morally wrong is the accusation. We'll get to that. Give Walter Block a pay raise is uh, in response to the previous petition, uh, which this petition organizer says are ridiculous, those claims. He did. Uh, Walt, Dr. Walter Block did not does not argue that slavery isn't morally wrong. And uh, the accusations of him as racist and sexist are defamatory to the highest level. For somebody who's been around as long as Professor Block has been, boy, it's odd to find out just now that he's a <laughs> an ableist and a racist, isn't it? Perhaps there's nothing meritorious about the claim. Perhaps there's just a complete lack of understanding among his students, some of his students, as to what uh, the libertarian's economic and political philosophy is which is sort of an indictment of those students and perhaps the institutions at which they matriculate. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the man who is the subject of those dueling petitions, Professor Walter Block, Professor of Economics, Loyola University of New Orleans. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, you got yourself in a uh, world of trouble by uh, offering a simple thought experiment, which I, I thought was um, sort of the purpose in uh, institutions of learning, but apparently not. Um, the thought experiment that got you in so much hot water with uh, some segment of your uh, your student body. Yes, uh, the thought experiment was, um, suppose my son has this horrible disease, God forbid, and it'll cost $10 million to cure him. And um, I don't have anything like that money, but you, 
uh, you dirty rat, you have <laughs> long wanted me to be your slave, and you're very rich, and you're willing to give me the $10 million, which I give to my son's doctors, and I save his life. And now I come to your plantation, and I give you uh, economics lessons, and I uh, pick cotton or whatever, and you can whip me or even kill me. And um, my claim, my question is, is this a valid contract? And as in all voluntary contracts, there's mutual gain. I gain because I value my son's life more than my uh, freedom, and you gain because you value my servitude more than uh, the 10 million. So we both gain. Uh, it's not indentured servitude because indentured servitude, you can't whip me, you can't kill me, you'd be a murderer or guilty of assault and battery. So this is real slavery. And uh, is voluntary slavery a legitimate thing? And in libertarian circles, this is very controversial, but it's a thought experiment. And what I'm trying to say is that there's nothing wrong per se with slavery. It's only coercive slavery, not voluntary slavery. And the reason I concocted this is I was doing an interview with the New York Times, and they were asking me to describe libertarianism. And they just weren't getting it, so I used the A-bomb, <laughs> this is the A-bomb, or the H-bomb, uh, 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 to try to, you know, make in the most dramatic way I could the distinction between voluntary and coercive, which is what libertarianism is all about. Yeah, right. I, I mean, uh, did Reason Magazine, has that never crossed anybody's desk and, and all of the other uh, libertarian philosophers? I mean, I'm not a libertarian myself, but but I, I'm I'm aware. I recognize. I've read. It, it's remarkable to me that this is such a foreign concept to whether it's the New York Times or, frankly, even your student body, that they would be so offended. Uh, they should be so ignorant, number one, and then so offended. You're, you're the the whole idea of a thought experiment is if you disagree with Professor Block, then explain why you disagree. Right? You're not forcing anybody to adopt your position. You're just putting a position out there in explanation. Precisely. You're exactly correct. There's nothing wrong with, uh, not only is there nothing wrong with thought experiments, that's the whole purpose of education is to uh, poke and tweak and challenge students. And, uh, you know, as a professional writer, contributed the academic literature to do the same with my colleagues. So you're quite right though, that within libertarian circles, this is controversial, and it's certainly controversial uh, uh, in in the school. But as uh, John Stuart Mill said in his On Liberty, that the whole point of of academic uh, intellectual pursuits is to uh, is to create divisiveness and discussion and dialogue. When we come back, I want to uh, get a handle on where things stand with you on campus uh, after this uh, controversy has uh, swelled up. More with Professor Walter Block, Professor of Economics at Loyola University of New Orleans, right after. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show we're speaking with walter block he's a professor of economics at loyola university new orleans and he has been uh, targeted for a purge from that institution for doing a thought experiment. It has given rise to a Wall Street Journal op-ed by him. It's given rise to dueling petitions from students that are pro and con Walter Block on campus. And I wonder uh, how, you know, this is always the interesting thing. How are your colleagues responding? People who've known you for many years over a long career in academia, 
how are they responding to the uh, the firestorm surrounding you right now? Well, we must have almost a dozen faculty, which is a very high proportion. I have about 200 professors who are free enterprise, and they are supporting me. Good. But the overall uh, colleagues of mine are, are not really libertarians and are not supporting me. They wouldn't even vote in favor of academic freedom. But my job is pretty safe. I have tenure, and it's very hard to fire me. Uh, in addition, the president of the university, bless her soul, has come out in favor of academic freedom and even ideological diversity. She doesn't agree with me. She's not a libertarian, but she supports her faculty when we uh, go off the reservation, so to speak, and, uh, and come up with thought experiments. The way this occurred, I told you, was with the New York Times, and what they did is they quoted me as favoring actual slavery when I only favored this hypothetical slavery. Of course. So I sued them, and happily we came to an agreement, and they did not exactly apologize, but they clarified, and they said six months after they published that I favored actual slavery, they said I didn't. And also, they took note of the fact that I have a, a long paper trail of favoring reparations for slavery. So that is reparations for actual slavery. Right. So if I think for reparations for actual slavery, I can hardly favor slavery itself. And and apparently that fact was not persuasive to these students that are riled up against you? No, I think they were blissfully unaware of it. They just didn't do their homework. They didn't read the part where the New York Times sort of apologized for their error. They just must have read the New York Times condemnation of me for supposedly favoring actual slavery. Now, about the morality, morality, yes, of course, slavery is immoral, but immorality means like you get drunk and you don't do your job or you don't respect your parents. You know, that's not really the essence of why slavery is evil. Slavery, actual slavery, is an abomination because it's coercive, because people are, you know, kidnapped and compelled to and, and raped and killed. I mean, this is monstrous. That's why slavery is evil, not because it's just immoral. There are so many things that are immoral for which you shouldn't be going to jail. Well, you should be going to jail or being punished if you were a slave master. Well, right. I mean, I, I get your position when I say right. And the libertarian would say that there is a, a morality that undergirds the libertarian philosophy and it's anti-coercion. And so, you know, it's anti-coercion across the board, although, you know, in some cases, different libertarians define that differently on things like the pro-life issue and so forth. But but generally speaking, the idea that persuasion, not coercion, that, that is a, more, a, a moral statement. Yes, you're exactly right. And I'm surprised you're not a libertarian since you really understand it well, so, I, I do. Uh, so I, thoroughly. <laughs> yes, well, I, I do. But I, I, as I said, I read your book, Defending the Undefendable, and I'm not so ready to jump on board with things like the legalization of prostitution. But there again, um, you're defending the undefendable well before it was fashionable, by the way, I should add. And it's right. it's all in the direction of radical individual rights. And so how you would square, you know, decades of scholarship with this argument that's being made against you, I, I guess it's really a testament to just how where we are today, I suppose. Yes. With regards to prostitution, I want to make it clear that I don't say the prostitution itself. No, no, I understand. I'm opposed to yes, prostitution. Yes, I, yes. No, I'm, I'm sure you understand. But I just wanted to clarify for the uh, listening audience that the libertarian view on prostitution is, yes, legalize it, but it doesn't mean you favor it. It just means that if somebody engages in consenting adult behavior for pay, they shouldn't go to jail. Right. There's this concept that something can be wrong and also legal. And this, again, is this, these are sort of the arguments that you would think would be welcome in a classroom because they would challenge students and you could have fun debates. That's what I remember to some extent having on campus. I guess that's a bygone era. Yes, expression would be vices, but not crimes. Prostitution is a vice, but, you know, not every 
being drunk is is a vice too, but you shouldn't go to jail for being drunk. You know, as long as you're in your own house. I'm not talking about driving while drunk. That's a different issue. You know, it'd be interesting to see how somebody like a Milton Friedman would be treated today. Somebody who would oh. who would argue right against the minimum wage, who would are on campus, even at University of Chicago, who would argue against uh, you know so called uh, equal pay for equal work laws because he he wants the discriminator punished right in the marketplace. And the famous exchange he had with one undergrad who challenged him on this, and he and he tried to explain to the young lady, "I'm on your side, and you're not on your side um, when it comes to laws, as opposed to punishing people in the in a free exchange paradigm." You know, we talk about this in like the entertainment. Would Mel Brooks have a career today? Would Don Rickles have a career today? Would Milton Friedman be a Nobel laureate today? Well, he might be a Nobel laureate, but what's his name? Uh, Joe Biden has been attacking Milton Friedman. He doesn't realize he's not running against Milton Friedman. He's running against Donald Trump. But on two separate occasions, he said things like, well, Milton Friedman doesn't run things, and Milton Friedman isn't king of the economy. Not that he ever was, but right. I mean, well, Milton um, Friedman, yeah. you know, sort of emblematic of, uh, of free enterprise and, and economic liberty. Right. I, I, you know, hasten to question whether or not the entire University of Chicago Economics School uh, that came up with Milton Friedman, George Stigler, others, uh, Ron Coase, would, would even be a thing today, if not for that history well, that predates all of this. Well, the University of Chicago is one of the better, you know, one of the better schools in the whole world, let alone in the United States. And and they also have this view that they don't discriminate on the basis of uh, race or sex. So, uh, Milton Friedman, I think, had very high quality, and I think he would be accepted. Would he be accepted at other places? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, certainly not with the cancel culture and the Black Lives Matter and and and, and all this, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, microaggressions and, yeah, and snowflakes right. and stuff. trigger warnings and he'd safe spaces a, and all the whole thing, right? Right. He'd have a hard time on college campuses now, as I do. Not that I put myself in his uh, position, but I, I certainly am a follower of his and. And I'm having my difficulties, as you can see, as sort of a, a Milton Friedmanite. Since uh, your university per, uh, president weighed in on this, uh, on the side of academic freedom, has it uh, died down at all, or does that just uh, wave a red cape in front of the mob? Well, a little of each. They've gone from about 400 signatures to about 600 signatures on their petition. But my petition, the one favoring me, which was started by a former student of mine, is now up to about 5,000. So we're almost tenfold times the number of uh, students, uh, not students, but the number of signatories. So uh, I'm gratified by that. He is Walter Block. He's a professor of economics at Loyola University, New Orleans. Professor Block, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck on campus. Thanks for having me on your show. It was a pleasure. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back, and uh, Blackhawks, great. Can I even use the Blackhawks anymore? I don't know. I don't TikTok on in terms of Chicago Blackhawks retaining that nickname and associated uh, logoing. Jeremy Roenick, Blackhawks, great, suing NBC Sports for wrongful termination, saying he was fired for saying something deemed vulgar, while a gay colleague who made similar comments was not reprimanded. This has, sort of has the feel of Title IX boomeranging on. The identitarians, uh, 
perhaps um, uh, the wrongful term or the, uh, the 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 speech monitoring, minding, boomeranging on uh, NBC Sports, boomerang on big media, basically, which is all left, including the sports media, as you know. Uh, if you recall, Ronick was uh, a guest on a episode of Barstool Sports uh, back in December, which seems like about uh, a decade ago, doesn't it? Where he joked about wanting to have a threesome with his wife and another NBC Sports host. Uh, he uh, described a day when the three of them were out by the pool while on vacation and were asked by another vacationer about the situation between all of them. And uh, Ronick said on the podcast i played it off like we were going to bed together every night the three of us and said if it really came to fruition it would be really good but it's never going to happen he apologized for his comments when they became public as of course they inevitably did but it was suspended and then fired in the lawsuit he filed on friday ronick said that during the 2018 winter olympics he asked NBC Sports executive Sam Flood about the colorful commentary he heard from analyst Johnny Weir regarding the body parts of ice skaters. Ronick says that Flood responded by saying, Weir is gay and he can say whatever. Ronick also pointed to a story from earlier in the month about a video where Weir and Tara Lipinski, another NBC commentator, uh, in, uh, for, you know, skating, used a vulgar term for a woman's groin and joked about a sexual affair when talking about Olympic bronze medalist Brady Tennell. However, to date, there's been not any remedial action taken against Lipinski or Weir, according to Ronick's lawsuit. And uh, Ronick thus concluding he was fired because of his sex and sexual orientation. He also said, here's the kicker, that his open support, uh, open support for President Trump in 2017 after he was elected, played a factor in his dismissal, you know, looking for a reason. Maybe. Sounds plausible. Um, the uh, situation of sort of the double standard of who can be playful, even to the point of, you know, vulgarity or tone deafness, but but nonetheless uh, rather innocent, uh, who can and cannot be, and, and, and the repercussions that are felt or not felt, pun intended, is is a salient one. So it actually be interesting to see how this uh, Ronick wrongful termination uh, sexual orientation discrimination suit goes. Maybe a pioneer in this space, even though I'm you know loath to encourage trial lawyers. This has been the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us on another installment. Please do so again tomorrow. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.